I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but yeah. Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. This is where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. If you have family or friends who can't watch the show on television, tell them to go to hotm.tv, and they can watch it live, streaming video from anywhere in the world. We welcome our YouTube audience, wherever they may be. We welcome our streaming video audience, wherever they may be. We welcome our video archive audience, our home television audience, our live audience, our digital and dish audiences. It's growing all over the place. We praise God for that. Beginning this Sunday, Calvary Campus is, be- is changing the time of our verse-by-verse Bible study from 9 to 10 in the morning to 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. up at the University of Utah. Why are we doing that? Our ministry is based on Ephesians 4, 12 through 13. Let's read that scripture really quick, if, it, if we can bring it up uh, on the screen. For the, we, what we do is we do it for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we get together and we want to support the local churches. We want to help them uh, come alongside of them as a feeder. And by doing the Sunday morning thing, we are kind of infringing upon their worship services. We have people who are rushing to get to their services or maybe sometimes have even been skipping their home church services. We don't want to do that. Plus, 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. is an excellent time for the Latter-day Saints who want to come and learn the Bible. We don't talk about Mormonism there. We just go verse by verse through the Bible. So it's a good time for them to leave their ward house after their meetings and come on and learn the Bible. So now you don't have any reason not to join us Sunday mornings at the University of Utah. Of course, the evening services at Weber State and Utah State will continue on same time, same places. Go to www.calvarycampus.com for more. Through every word, I would feel very comfortable giving this to my LDS father, who is a stake president. I was a born again Mormon. It is available at Gift of Grace Christian Supply in Springville, Utah Lighthouse Ministry, utlm.org, Christian Gift and Bible, Lifeway Books in Murray, Oasis Books in Logan, New Life Books in Roy, and online at bornagainmormon.com. So you love the LDS church, but you want to see some things change? Abandon ship. From what we've been told, I don't know if this is a fact, but I suspect that there's some validity to it. Uh, There is a real problem afoot within Mormonism with both retention and real growth. 
Mormonism as it stands is having trouble keeping the people it baptizes active and the growth of it, the growth that it experiences and more is more and more from family members coming of age of baptism instead of missionary converts. All this is understandable when you look at the information that's available on the website, uh, on the internet, the public focus on the church uh, that has resulted in their politics and uh, fundamental Mormonism and the Prop 8 fiasco. All that stuff is starting to maybe have an effect on people. Do something, even if it seems like it's irrelevant on your part, do something to make them sit up and take notice. Force them to say, what are we doing wrong? Why are people leaving? Why can't we keep people sitting in the pews? How can we stop this exodus from occurring? Force them to see that once they renounce all the issues that trouble these people, that uh, embarrass them, that they may have some of them stick around. But some things have got to change, so abandon ship until it does. Go to bornagainmormon.com for information on how to do that if you're interested. In a recent LDS magazine called The Insign, there is an article which typifies the Mormon methods of appearing Christian while at the same time uh, it reveals their true heart. Do you want to test to see if you are in a non-Christian belief system, church, or even a cult? Look at the engine and then look at the caboose of the religious train that you're on. Look at the engine that pulls it and look at the caboose of the religious train that you participate in. If Jesus is not at both ends of this train, at the front pulling it and at the back as the finished work of it, you're involved in somewhat, to some extent, the product of a man or a woman. While Islam recognizes Jesus as a prophet, it calls Muhammad the final prophet, the caboose of their train. Jehovah's Witnesses have the teaching and insights of William Taz Russell in the front and at the back of their train. Seventh-day Adventists have Ellen G. White at the caboose and partially at the front. Christian scientists have Mary Baker Eddy. Waco had uh, David Koresh. They all have an engine and a caboose that leads or ends their train. But it's not only the, only the major sects that do this. Uh, you can find this cult of personality type even in Christian churches. There are churches around today, even within the state, where the pastor or the reverend will stand there and they'll literally dictate how uh, the flock should vote, how the flock should school their children, how they should govern their private lives and their families, all kinds of things which are outside of the biblical purview. They become in themselves either the engine or the caboose. This isn't Christianity. It's just men and women taking their place on the train that they, that they should never take. Every single aberrant offshoot sect will somehow place a man or woman where Jesus needs to be. In the latest edition of the church magazine, The Ensign, there is a pictorial. The first page of the, of the article shows Jesus. And it says something about his gospel. When you flip the page, what it does is it has a series of four, five pictures. I wanted to show it to you tonight, but I forgot it at my friend's house. But it shows the first picture, a painting of, I think it's uh, Adam. And then it shows uh, Abraham. And then it shows Moses. And then it shows Jesus. And then, then it shows Joseph Smith. 
There, the caboose of the train. Now, you might think, oh, you're picking on us, Sean. You're anti-Mormon. We don't believe Joseph Smith's necessary to our salvation. We have people call and tell us this. Listen to this. Not going to believe it. This is from Scott, who used to be LDS. He sent this to me. He said, I was reading the February 2009 Ensign Magazine and found the following quote by Elder F. Burton Howard, a member of the 70, page 9. Listen to this quote. Our personal salvation depends upon whether we accept and have a testimony of what Joseph saw and heard in the spring of 1820, end quote. They call and say, my salvation's all based on Jesus Christ. We get emails, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Joseph is just someone who helps us understand him. This quote from a member of the Brethren from the Hierarchy Church in 2009, September, Ensign Magazine, the official magazine for the church says, your personal salvation depends on whether you accept and have a testimony of what Joseph said he saw and heard in the spring of 1820. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to take my last breath and go before the almighty creator, having Joseph Smith as the caboose of my religious train. I would not want to have bought into that system, knowing full well that along my life, I have had questions that said, dad, this sounds really strange. Man, there's something wrong with this, but I'll just keep going because it must be true. Come on, keep thinking, you guys. Open up your eyes and minds and get with it. And with that, Let's have a prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask you to be with us wherever we are, wherever we are in our search. Be with us and help us to know you better, uh, more clearly. Open our eyes and ears and hearts with understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. So in December of 2007, we ended the year with telling uh, how Mormon founder Joseph Smith Jr., after killing two men, was shot and killed himself while incarcerated in Carthage jail in July of 1844, where assassins thought his death would end Mormonism and certain Latter-day Saint leaders saw it as their chance to step in and fill Joseph's shoes. Emma Smith, Joseph's faithful first wife, faced the cold, hard facts of being five months pregnant the mother of four young children, and in great financial stress. Nearly 16 years earlier in 1828, her firstborn child, a son, lived only a few hours before he died. Three years later, she watched as a set of twins that she bore died in infancy too. Not long thereafter, Emma and Joseph had the opportunity to adopt a set of twins whose mother passed away in childbirth, only to have one survive, a girl named Julia, who was the adopted daughter of the Smiths and survived into adulthood. A year later, Emma gave birth to Joseph Smith III, who would be the oldest Smith's son to survive, followed by Frederick, born in 1836, Alexander in 1838, and then she gave birth to their last child, David, born four months after Joseph Smith's death. While Joseph Smith was incarcerated in Liberty Jail in 1838, he was visited by Emma and his children. Here he gave Joseph Smith III a special blessing, telling him that he would one day head the church Joseph claimed to have restored to the earth. He was one of several to whom Joseph Smith promised the position. 
1839, after establishing themselves temporarily in Ohio and then Missouri, the Latter-day Saints relocated to a place in Illinois along the Mississippi River, which they renamed Nauvoo. The town grew quickly, partly because Joseph sent his most capable apostles back east and also overseas to Europe to proselyte for the church and have people come out to this beautiful new land called Nauvoo. At the time of his death, Nauvoo had somewhere between 12 and 15,000 residents. It was a city larger than Chicago at the time. But the success of Nauvoo combined with the uniquely constructed city charter and the irresponsible and irrepressible ego of the prophet somehow led Joseph Smith to believing that he could have success at nearly anything he put his hand to, including some other men's wives. Now, this is not anti-Mormon stuff. These are facts. Check them out. Interpolygamy. Interplural marriage or the new and everlasting covenant, whatever you want to call it, Nauvoo was the place where it really got legs. Whatever you want to name it, Emma Smith, Joseph's wife, wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. In spite of Joseph's relentless attempts to see it accepted both in Nauvoo and in his own home. As we discussed back in 2007, it is believed by LDS scholars and LDS historians, no less, that Joseph started messing around with plural marriage all the way back in 1833, 11 years earlier. But something in those swamplands of Nauvoo drove him to near obsession with the practice for the last two years of his life. In July of 1843, a little less than a year before the shootout at Carthage Jail, Joseph finally put the revelation commanding that the Mormons practice polygamy in writing. Salt Lake City Mormonism, the present-day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, has never renounced the doctrine of plural marriage. It continues to allow males to spiritually practice plural marriage by marrying multiple women for eternity in the temples that dot the land, and yet it continues to deny that they have anything to do with it at all. But more on this later in the year as we talk about Brigham Young. Valene Tippett Avery, a professor of history at the Northern Arizona University and former president of the Mormon History uh, History Association wrote in the introduction of her book, From Mission to Madness, page 11, that while some persons argued later that he, Joseph, took wives in the spiritual sense without sexual relations, the women's own testimonies document that plural marriages generally involved full conjugal visits. And why not? Huh? I mean, if you're going to go all the way to marrying, go all the, to all the trouble of marrying this poor gal secretly, you might as well take full advantage of the marital rights, right? Right, Joseph? Yes. Well, here's the problem among many problems. Emma, who was, who stuck by Joseph through thick and thin, through constant moves, through jail time, through which was both deserved and not deserved by Joseph, through marches, through the constant threat of death, through financial debacles, bank failures, adamantly opposed the practice of polygamy. And as a result, she was kept in the dark about it with a few noted exceptions. 
So while Emma refused to embrace plural wives, Joseph collected them like a woodworker collects tools, all without the knowledge of Emma, of course. For example, there was this very well-liked and educated woman, LDS woman, by the name of Eliza R. Snow. She was one of she was Emma's friend first, and she lived off and on at different times in the home of the Smiths. Well, old Eliza went and secretly married Joseph in June of 1842. When Emma uh, found out about this, it literally destroyed her relationship with Eliza. Perhaps what is most difficult to learn in the case of Emma and polygamy was how the women of Nauvoo who embraced Joseph's polygamy would silently let her as the Relief Society president stand up and teach and preach against the evils of the practice when some of those very women sitting before her were sharing her husband. In the end, Emma learned about seven of these secret marriages, of which we know there were 33, which invariably caused her to feel betrayed not only by the man she faithfully stuck by, but by many of her closest sister friends. I mean, in the end, she was made a fool. And women, they can take a lot of things, but they hate being a fool. They hate being the last one to know. I know that from experience in some ways. Nevertheless, while some of uh, Joseph's closest male associates' wives acquiesced to the practice, Emma refused, and this proved to be a very embarrassing situation for the prophet Joseph Smith. I mean, Emma, you're making me look like a fool out here. I'm the prophet of the church, and you won't let me have another wife. Brigham's got 14 already. I mean, I just want, I just want old, old sister Hollister down there. She's missing both legs and an eye. Can I have her? I mean, it was desperation for Joseph to be able to practice polygamy somehow, and Emma wouldn't give it to him, so he snuck behind her back. This is the prophet, the founder, the guy you say praise to the man. This is, who, this is what you say about him. This is what he did, okay? I'm not making it up. Well, in May of 1843, Emma finally, but oh so temporarily, capitulated, and she allowed Joseph, through his relentless persistence, to have four plural four plural wives, two sets of sisters, Sarah and Maria Lawrence, and Eliza and Emily Partridge. Sadly and sickly, Joseph had already married these four women, but in order to keep peace with his wife, he arranged for another ceremony to be performed to make Emma believe it was actually her idea. The whole matter was far too much for Emma to bear, and as soon as the ceremony was completed, she kind of freaked out, and she demanded that the concept, the practice, the doctrine of plural marriage be abandoned, and she maintained that position until her death. It was six weeks after the marriage of the two sets of sisters that Joseph put the commandment in writing. Joseph's brother Hiram believed that because of his special relationship with Emma, he could get her to embrace it, and so he took it to her and found himself mistaken and frankly rebuked. Shortly thereafter, Emma gave Joseph an ultimatum, abandon the plural wives or she would abandon him. William Clayton, Joseph's personal secretary, wrote in his journal that to keep her, Joseph promised Emma he would relinquish all. 
But in recounting the incident to Clayton himself, Joseph admitted his deception by saying that he would not relinquish anything. In other words, he lied and he deceived her. In 1844, it appears from a number of reliable accounts, including the affirmation by Emma Smith herself, that Joseph Smith III was ordained by his father to succeed him as president of the church. In a somewhat of a showdown, Emma forced these four wives, two sets of sisters, to, um, that she once permitted Joseph to marry to abandon ship. In the end, and much to the surprise of the four girls involved, Joseph stood and sided with Emma and asked them to move out and on. But behind the scenes of a bustling Nauvoo, the mayor and now candidate of the President of the United States continued to gather brides in secret. While Joseph certainly had the support of most of Nauvoo, he seems to have overstepped the boundaries with the wife of one person. His name was William Law. William Law was an, came from Ireland and uh, by way of Canada. He was a faithful uh, a Christian man who came to believe in Mormonism in Canada and brought saints down from Canada to join the big revival of Mormonism or the revival of Mormonism there in Nauvoo. Well, when Emma got wind of Joseph's uh, approaches to William Law's wife, and she was ready to abandon the prophet forever. But Joseph was able to salvage their marriage one last time and keep her from returning to her home in Pennsylvania, which she was going to do. However, William Law and his brother Wilson were not about to be so easily charmed. In May of 1844, Joseph Smith was charged with adultery based on William Law's testimony. The whole affair between Smith and Jane Law prompted the Law, Higby, and Foster brothers to buy a printing press in Nauvoo. They called it the Nauvoo Expositor, and they ran their first and only issue on June 7th of 1844. In it, they disclosed the tactics and strategies Joseph and those who followed him would use to get women to agree to the ugly practice of multiple wives, and then they described what it was like for these women once they embraced it. They also attacked other church doctrine, advocated immediate reform, and challenged the Nauvoo political system. This was far too much for Joseph to bear, and he orchestrated through the Nauvoo City Council which he controlled, that the printing press would be destroyed and the publishers driven out of town. Now, in a relatively new America, there was an enormous, and I mean an enormous, fear of anything that smacked of anarchy or, terror or uh, tyranny or of barbarism. And America was to be the true land of freedom. They wanted freedom of speech, freedom of tyranny, freedom from the political oppressions that they had seen in other lands. And yet at the same time, American soil was founded on a strong Judeo-Christian ethic, which was resentful for anything that uh, resembled barbarism, which would be uh, like polygamy. To practice plural marriage was absolutely unconscionable to the minds of Christian Americans. But to uh, tyrannically abuse the political power of the city government to have them uh, use anarchy and destroy a free press was way too much for anybody. I mean, they just looked down and they heard press destroyed by the advice of a political power 
a man who was practicing polygamy secretly, it wasn't that Joseph Smith had to be stopped. It was that he had to be put out. Essentially, the order was gone, it went out. This cannot happen in this country of ours. We've experienced tastes of this in places we come from. It's not going to happen in America. Now, some believe it was the hands of American patriots. Others blamed a frothing group of anti-Mormons for his death. Some say it was angry Masons because Joseph had ripped off the Masonic stuff and supported uh, some anti-Masons. And some are certain that it happened at the command of rational men of Mormonism like Brigham Young, who sought to take control of the large movement and remove it from Joseph's megalomania-type actions now that seem to be growing more and more day by day. Whatever was behind it, and for whatever reason, there was a gunfight and Joseph Smith was killed, June 24th, 1844. So let's move on now for the rest of the year. As soon as word got out uh, to the traveling apostles, including Brigham Young, they returned to Nauvoo and began vying for control. When the dust settled, there seemed to be three remaining viable choices for the position. William Marks, who was an avid anti-polygamist, Sidney Rigdon, who was a counselor in Joseph Smith's first presidency, and Brigham Young. Emma sided with Marks based solely on his stance against plural marriage and due to the fact that she did not appreciate the person and the policies of Brigham Young. By August 8th, however, Brigham had established the governing power in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles over Rigdon and Marx, and he began to make decisions and on how to somehow save the church from some serious issues. As a means to quell a growing threat of violence against the Mormons there in Nauvoo, the governor of Illinois made Brigham Young a lieutenant in the Nauvoo Legion, and this commission somehow served to temper the imminent violence that was coming against the remaining LDS still in Nauvoo. Then one day in a moment of grandeur, Brigham Young borrowed Joseph Smith's old military trappings, including his horse, which offended Emma and angered her greatly, but it also created a distaste for Brigham Young in the mouth of Joseph's 12-year-old son, Joseph III, who later recalled that he saw Brigham Young being abusive to his father's favorite horse. As we shall soon see over the course of the next months, Young was only beginning to flex his muscle. Emma and Brigham found themselves at odds with the disposition of property, with Emma believing that most of it belonged to her through her husband, and with Brigham, belie Brigham believing that it belonged to the church, since Joseph didn't take the time to separate his personal interests from the institution that he formed, it was a sticky wicket from the moment of his death. Ultimately, writes Tippett Avery, both Emma and Young would be disappointed at the meager yield coming from Joseph's legacy in Nauvoo. In conclusion, I would suggest that anyone who has ever banked on Joseph's legacy will too find themselves disappointed at the meager yield it produces. Let's open up the phone lines. We're going to open, give you the number, call in, and then we're going to go to a break. It's 801-973-TV20, 801-973-TV20. Now listen closely. We have been patient for almost three years now. And when you call, if, you, if we get on the line with you and I say, hey, George, you're on the air, and you sit there and pause, I'm hanging up on you. 
okay? Because it's so much time is wasted because you're not listening to the operator's instructions, which are, once you're put on hold, the next voice you hear is going to be Sean's. And so you're sitting there and you're trying to listen to the show through the TV and it's on a delay. And so it's messing it up. So just remember, if you call, have a question ready, have a comment ready, and uh, first time callers only, and LDS preferably all the time, but be ready with your question or we're gonna hang up on you. See you in a minute. Hey, we've got uh, a number of emails while the operators, hey, if the lines are full, just keep trying, you'll get through. Uh, I got to read this to you quickly. Sean, I'm so happy to have found your program of TV. We have seriously followed it for a year and a half and have met with you three times. We are studying the Bible and acquiring literature from Sandra Tanner and are excited to learn the true teachings of Jesus Christ. I am 74 years old and have sinned. As a child with nine brothers and sisters, we were forced to attend the Mormon church. My dad and mom did not attend. Sunday was not my best day. I was married at a young age, 17. My wife and I were happy and were living our dreams until the church started choking my life with its doctrine. My wife started pushing on temple marriage. The temple with its unspoken blessings are on the hearts of every uh, member. Either they are striving to be worthy enough to go or burdened by deep guilt uh, for their worthlessness or bound by secret pride or be of being one of the worthy secret few. So I got married in the temple. The church piled jobs on me so I might stay active. I gradually fell under, away under the pressure and my wife tried hard to make me active. She sent bishops and stake presidents and war teachers to try to encourage me or shame me into being worthy. I finally divorced my wife and the church. A few years later, I met a wonderful lady, Jody. She also struggled with the doctrine of the Mormons. She had two boys, seven and four, when we got married. As her children turned eight, she decided not to have them baptized in the Mormon church. She wanted them to find God for themselves. Her mother told her she would go to hell for not having them baptized. It would be a very bad sin. My sister and brother-in-law told us about your show, but my wife did not want to see it. It took about three months before she could watch it. You were talking about Mormon history and the church and the people. God was working in our lives. You said on your show, don't believe me, find out for yourselves. This took us to Utah Lighthouse Ministry. She has read 25 books since June of this year. We are now studying the Bible. We are so excited to learn the true teachings of Christ. We now have seven family members who want Christ in their lives too. Thank you for helping us put Christ in our heart and lives. Thank you for uh, being willing to listen. Uh, another one, the... We'll just take this quick. This is from a guy who says, when I talked to the missionaries, uh, he was baptized in March. I told them that I wanted to know everything about the church. They told me that there was no way that I could learn it all and to join. And there I could continue my learning. Soon after I was baptized, I, I came to realize the church was fake. This rocked the foundation of my faith that I had in God originally. I, be I began to have atheistic views that I would never have had prior to becoming a Mormon. Uh, in fact, I was able to meet with this uh, young man and he told me, if you're an atheist, join the church because it'll reinforce that belief. That's harsh, I know. I don't necessarily think that's the, uh, the case, but I understand what he means by that. We've got three first-time callers. We're going to Jacob in Logan. 
Jacob, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm really good. Uh, my question is, if I pretend that I'm an atheist and I come up to you and say, which church should I join? Which one would you tell me to go to? I tell you, don't go to any church that makes you join it. First exactly. of all. But uh, which church, which one church should I go to? Because there's so many. Everyone believes they're true. The Catholics believe they're true. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe they're true. But which one is true? Well, this is the thing, first of all, Jacob, is you have to understand the Bible teaches that the church is made up of people. It's not made up of buildings. It's I not totally agree. Or denominations. It's made up yep. of believers. But the Bible also teaches that the foundation of God's church yeah. It's built on apostles, prophets, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Isn't it? And so which church has apostles and prophets today with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone? Okay, wait a minute. What do you, why did you just make a transition from the Bible saying that the church would be built on apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, and then you said which church today has? A, exactly. founda a, a foundation is something that is built. The church was built on apostles and prophets. And Jesus... Except God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he had apostles, prophets back then, he will have them today. And so which church today has apostles, okay. prophets, and Jesus Christ? Okay, Use, that's, that's a fallacious argument, ja uh, Jacob, because you're saying God does not change, but God does alter the course. For instance, we don't sacrifice animals anymore that God once had the children of Israel sacrifice. There's a number of things that God one time commanded, but he doesn't anymore. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us exactly what happened to prophets. Now Jesus is our prophet. The foundation was laid by apostles. Their name were Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and Nathaniel, and Philip, and all those guys. That's the foundation. And then the churches build up of believers who rest upon their testimonies found in the Word. You are trying to think that some church today has to have these guys walking around saying that they are apostles. That's well, not true. Why, why does the Bible say that there will be many false prophets in the last days, but by their fruits you shall know them? If there's to be no, no prophets in the last days, it won't even put in by the fruits you shall know them. It will just say all the prophets in the last days will be false. But it doesn't say that. It says by their fruits you shall know them which means there will be good prophets, true prophets, as well as false prophets. Okay. And by their fruits you shall know them. One of the fruits of Prophet Joseph Smith is the Book of Mormon. Another fruit Mormon is polygamy and lying to his wife. Another is, another is polygamy and lying to his wife. Well, that's, that's just a branch off of, the, off of the foundation of the matter. The Book of Mormon is the foundation of this church. If the Book of Mormon is true, Joseph Smith is a prophet. No, that, that's again a, a straw man that you've set up so that you can worship at the feet of it. But you got to look at all the works of Joseph Smith. I would think Satan would give us 99% truth in order to make us believe 1% of a lie. If Joseph Smith, you're saying that's just one branch polygamy. Well, let's look at everything else that he was involved in. Let's look at the false prophecies. The, the book of Deuteronomy says, If a prophet shall say, Thus saith the Lord, and it does not come to pass, he's a false prophet. Joseph Smith has proven himself to be false several times. And the book really of good. Mormon, the book of Mormon, uh, we did seven parts, seven hours of talking about the book of Mormon. So I, I can't go back and try to rehearse that in a five-second conversation. But go back and watch our show on the book of Mormon, all seven of them, and see what you think about the book if you really examine it. Go to YouTube. That's, that's really the, the problem with, the, with any church today. Everyone tries to prove their points. They'll say, 
My church is true because of Have this, I this, said this, there's this, a church that's true? What's that? You, I'm, con I'm contradicting what you just said right now. Have I said there is a church that is true? No, but everybody believes their church to be true. That's not true. I just said, I, you said everybody, I am somebody, therefore there's a contradiction here. Okay, how about 90% then? How 90 about not? How about most Christians, most Christians, true Christians know that there is no church denomination that's true. There we was when Jesus Christ was on the earth. What That's, Jesus Christ was here on the earth and as soon as he left and the Holy Spirit took over and men were left in charge to learn how to work this thing out, it started falling apart. So how but, does God speak to us today then? His Holy Spirit. Why do you need a prophet if the Holy Spirit is given since the day of Pentecost to live inside of you? Why do you need a prophet to tell you what to do? Because if there was the Holy Spirit guiding everybody the same way, there wouldn't be all these different Christian denominations. There wouldn't be all these different faiths. There oh, would the, everybody would dress and look the same and act exactly the same? Is that what you're saying in this diverse world that God created? No, would all, I'm saying they would all believe the same thing. They would all believe in Jesus Christ. And, and you know what? At the core of every single Christian faith, all different denominations lie those very same things. You take a Baptist, you take a Protestant, or a Methodist, you take all of them. At the core lies the fact Jesus was God in the flesh. He died. He was resurrected. The Bible is the Word of God. All the cores but see, it's Mormonism that comes and takes the cores away and adds to it and gives you a bunch of other stuff. Well, could you go to in the Bible to Amos chapter 3, verse 7? And tell Amos chapter 3, verse 7 is in the Old Testament, okay? Exactly. And we're talking about a time, we're talking 400 years before the intertestamentary inter period of silence. There was 400 years when there were no prophets. And, and what does Amos 3, chapter 7 say? It doesn't matter what it says. It says, surely the Lord God will, will do nothing, nothing, but he revealed his will to his servants, the prophets. Unto his servants, the prophets. Okay, let me ask you a question then. Sure. Okay, and you believe that? Definitely. Okay, did the Lord God reveal, uh, reveal um, let's just say, the New Orleans flood to Gordon B. Hinckley? The what? Did he reveal that New Orleans was going to be flooded and the saints there were going to be, some saints would die in that flood. Did he reveal that to his prophet, Gordon B. Hinckley? I don't know. Well, if he did, then Gordon B. Hinckley did a bad job of getting it out to those folks. And if he didn't, it conflicts with that Amos 3 uh, verse that you're trying to use here. You see, surely the Lord God will do nothing but he revealed his will to his servants, the prophets. But what you're saying is that he will do nothing on this earth without telling the prophet. There's all kinds of things that go on on this earth the prophet doesn't have any idea about. You gotta look at context within the Bible. You're picking one verse out. Go to Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Just read Hebrews 11.1. 11, 1.11, 1, 1, 1, 1. I don't even remember now. But read Hebrews. I'm saying that if God wants to speak to his people to the people of the world. He does it through his Holy Spirit. He will do it through a prophet. He does it because through his Holy Spirit. Spirit. People believe they're being led by the Holy Spirit when they're not. They have people believe they're being led by a prophet and they're not. It's true. There will be many false prophets in the last days. You're but right. You shall know them. How many, so really, how, in the last days, let me ask you, J Jacob, how many churches have a prophet? I, I really don't know. No, well, get, guess. I know she was the, not, none. I, I don't know any church that's led by a prophet except one. So that, exactly. that okay, exactly. Right. So, if there's only one church that claims to have a prophet, and the, Jesus is warning us that in the last days there's going to be many false prophets, I can think of 14 of them. 
uh, then we've got something there, don't we? Definitely. By the fruits you shall know them. And so what it really okay, what fruits down you, to See, this is a is, circular argument. We have done show. This is the problem. I can't handle all the different aspects that you're hitting on. But we have handled them in entire shows. And so uh, I, I, I'm not able to bring any of that information up. I don't have the mind. But we have... Really the only way to find truth yes. is not by arguing topics. This isn't arguing. Making a show and saying the, the Mormon church is false because of this, this, and this. It, the only way you can find it is by praying. And so what you're asking me to do okay. is believe your word over what God has No, I, I, I absolutely am not asking you to believe my word at all. I'm asking you to open up the word and read it. And, and anybody who does knows that Jesus is God in the flesh. There's a trinity. There's one God, not polytheistic. There's the one. The Bible never teaches a trinity. You're what? The Bible never teaches a trinity. The Bible teaches uh, th that there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The last verse of Matthew. That's what we baptize in the name, singular. One God. Exactly. But they're not, they're not one person, one being. Really? Really. Really? Well, you know, that's what Joseph tells you. You can believe that, or I'm going to believe the Word. Well, the Bible also says in there, Jesus Christ is praying to his Father, and he's praying for the people, that, and he says he wants all the people to be one. No, he wants his... He the Father that's the intercessory prayer, and he wants his disciples to be one as he is the Father are one. Exactly. So is he going to absorb their... Their essence and make them one, just See, like him and the Father. Look, this this little this Jacob, this little missionary trick you're trying to use, which I used it when I was on my mission too, has nothing to do with what the Bible says. Je Philip said to Jesus, "Jesus, show us the Father." And Jesus says, "Philip, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." He, Jesus said, "God is a spirit." Joseph said, "God is a man with flesh and bones." How many things do you're going to believe this guy and uh, versus what the Bible teaches? So many. And you hey, you're defending it because that's all you've been taught. You are a spirit as well. You're a spirit in a physical body. And I'm one person, aren't I? Spirit in a physical body. I'm God one person, right? Spirit in a physical body. I'm a body, soul, and spirit, right? But there's exactly. only one Sean McCraney, right? Right. Okay, so there you have it, my friend. One Sean McCraney, body, soul, and spirit. Exactly. Your spirit is, is in your body. It doesn't take away the fact that you're a spirit. Jesus Christ, he's a spirit, but he has a physical body. It doesn't change the fact that he is a spirit. Well, we've got a lot of people waiting. We haven't gotten anywhere. I, I believe what I believe. We have, let's see, 150 hours of shows. You're calling me with a few things. Watch them all. Write down all the things we're wrong on. Send me an email, and I'll tell you, well, I've made a mistake here, or you're, you're incorrect. I mean, well, how much? The difference is, I believe what I believe because God told me it's true. Okay, here so is the problem. Oh, gosh, I can't let this go. Here's the problem with this, uh, Logan, is the Jehovah's Witnesses and the and Muslims and the uh, and the atheists and everybody else believe what they believe because something told them it's true. They don't go to the manual, and neither have you. Don't come to me, but go to the manual. I do. I believe of course manual. you do. But if you do, why would you believe these things that are contrary to the manual? I'm believing in the things that are true to the manual. You're believing in things that are contrary to the manual. Really? Everything you're bringing up is your opinion. But uh -huh. what is God's opinion? Okay, tell me, tell me, what do, uh, what do the things you do in the temple have to do with what's in the manual? Temple is in the Bible. God yeah, the word temple is in the Bible. Yeah. What's that? 
the word temple is in the Bible. You're right on that one. Exactly. And yeah. They bring yeah. Up what does that have to do with, uh, what does what you do in the temple have to do with the Bible? What is that, what does the new and everlasting covenant have to do with the Bible? When Jesus well, said they are not given in marriage, they are not married in heaven. What does the new well, and everlasting covenant have to do with it? One of the things that it brings up in the Bible that is in the temple is baptisms for the dead. It clearly states there about That was for tough for Joseph to pull out and stick into the temple. I'm asking about the other things. Like marriage? No, you know, all the things. I'm not going to go into them. You've been through the temple. All those things you do that you sit in the room and you go through the different stages and levels. What, is, what does all that have to do with the Bible? The thing with the Bible is that that is not everything God has ever spoken. Ah, so the now Bible. the manual can't be trusted, can it? Oh, it definitely can. Now you got to go to the man instead of the manual. But it's not everything that God has spoken. Of course not, because it's never everything for the, for the, for the I don't want to say cults, but it's not everything for those groups. They so always God, have additions. If God truly loves everybody, why didn't he speak to the rest of the world? Why did he just stick with the people in, in that part of the world? Well, where's the, where's the Book of Mormon for Africa? Exactly. It, where is it? Yet. Where is it for China? Where, where where, well, for where are they? Your argument places. is, if God loved everybody, why does it, your argument is he's given us other books because he loves other continents. Well, where are those books for the other continents? They will come eventually. I oh, good know. answer. Yeah, eventually. So in the meantime, all those people are dying, suffering, not knowing God at all. But, but God will provide someday these extra books for them. Look, at your, your arguments are all fallacious. The Bible that, was given. It's the Word of God. Is. What? That's what missionary work is for. Well, okay. I agree. And Christian missionaries have been, out, been doing it since the beginning of time. I mean, exactly, so... I know. Mormon missionaries are having a lot of success. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah, rah, rah. Anything else that we're going to end on? Um, yeah, pray. Pray and you'll know the truth. No, read the Bible and you know the truth. I do, I do uh, read the Bible. Of course you do. As, so long as it's translated correctly and you can add your other exactly. books to it. Exactly. Like that pearl of great price, buddy. Correct. That pearl of great price, man. Sink your teeth into that one. Woo! Full of stuff. Go get them, man. All right, see ya. All right, we're going to Jerry and Clinton. I'm sorry. That was a long call, but it was fun. Jerry, you're on Heart of the Matter. Jerry? Hi, is, you're on the air. Hi, this is, this is Jerry. I'm 56 years old. I was born and raised in Clinton, Utah, and I'm a critical care ER trauma room nurse. Uh, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the Mormon religion, and maybe you can enlighten me. Um, I uh, almost turned Mormon, and uh, turn just Mormon. Be I was going to marry my high school sweetheart, and just before my uh, uh, we were going to get married, uh, the parents told her that it would be an interracial marriage and they wouldn't accept the children and neither would the church accept the children and we didn't get married. Then, as uh, I have traveled, only Utah, and it only seems that Mormons have uh, called me the N-word. They have said I have the sin of cane on me because my hair color is different and my skin color is different. Uh, they have called me a no-good Lamanite. And uh, they have refused to have me touch them. Even uh, uh, one of our patients came into the emergency room. There was an Italian doctor, an LPN who was a woman, black woman, and myself who's uh, Spanish-Mexican. And 
he didn't have insurance when he came into the veterans hospital where we were treating him. He actually uh, had got an ambulance and went up to the University of Utah other than let us touch him, and he said he would pay for it. Uh, because that, you guys were different. That's why the veterans get paid for it. But anyway, uh, I just wanted to know that uh, it seems like all I've ever gotten was uh, prejudicial uh, uh, statements from the Mormons. Well, and I, and want, I wanted you to enlighten me about. Uh, well, I'm sure. Know, I'm sure. I'm sure you've heard about the doctrines, and and we did a show on racism. You can go back in the archives and watch the show on racism. But, uh, you know, it all stems from, uh, you know, a, a bunch of sayings that are a conglomeration of the, the curse of Cain to a pre-mortal uh, fence sitting to uh, all sorts of things. But they were highly racist up until the mid-1950s. And then the, all that seed in history continues to live in the hearts of some LDS. But I would say that the younger generation is not that way. Uh, and, but the still it still lives in the hearts of some of the older folks who were cut their teeth on that. But all that says to me is you're going to trust the prophets who are preaching racism in the 1950s. And then in the 1960s, they stop it becomes, because they come more educated and advanced. And then now it's lessened, but it's still in the hearts of the older ones. It's just trusting men. And, and that's going to be my best answer for you. I hope it helps, mm -hmm. Jerry. Well, could you tell me um, uh, why the, I've been told on one side the Lemonites uh, are sitting at the left-hand side of the God. The Melanites are sitting on the right-hand side of the God. You're going to go to heaven uh, just like uh, the, the Mormons are, and then be turned around and be told that Lemonites are nothing. They're no good. You can't touch me. Get away from me. Jerry, you know, that type I, of thing. I, I've never heard that about Lamanites and Mormonism. So it's uh -huh. gonna, this is, sounds like a subjective experience that you've had with certain individuals, and we can all have bad ones with certain individuals. But I know in the history of Mormonism, the Lamanites have never really been a bad thing, except in the Book of Mormon. Uh, no, so yeah. maybe, they're con maybe they're using their Mormonism teaching to express their prejudice. Is that what you're telling me? As an individual expression? Could be. Uh -huh. God bless you, my friend. Okay. Thank well, you. Bye-bye. We're going to Bill and Sandy, first-time caller. Bill, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah. Hi, Bill. How you doing? Good. How are you? Go on, my brother. You're on the air. Okay. Uh, my, my question is, is that all throughout time we've had prophets. Um, what makes any prophet any different than any other prophet in as much that every prophet that has ever been has been born unto sin and every one of them has been an imperfect person? I'm not sure I follow your question. What I'm, I guess kind of what I'm saying is, how do you know that Joseph Smith wouldn't be a prophet because he committed, you know, didn't live a perfect life oh. as opposed to any other prophet who didn't live a perfect life? What makes him any different than any other prophet that had a perfect life? Two things. First and foremost, the Deuteronomy references, you take what they say is of the Lord and you see if it happens. The things Joseph Smith said, thus saith the Lord, Many things did not happen, and the Bible says, the manual says, they are a false prophet, do not fear them. That's the first thing. The second thing is Hebrews 1.1, and it says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So if he, with Jesus came and fulfilled the law and the prophets, there is no need for people to stand up and say, I'm the prophet now. 
Okay, so those are the two reasons why I would reject Joseph Smith and his uh, claims of being a prophet. Does that help? Yeah, kind of, kind of not. I, I, so of course not, because that's not what of, you wanted to hear. Well, no, no, that's not, not exactly true. Well, I what, what, of, what are you I looking you for? I kind of interpreted it the way that you wanted to answer it. How could I interpret that? God used to speak in diverse ways through prophets in these last days. He well, let me ask you something. Yeah. Um, if, if you have such a feeling about that Joseph Smith was not a prophet... I don't have a feeling. You prayed about it and it was manifest to you? you no. You prophesied it? You no. revelated it? It was no. answered to you? How no. do you know that? Uh, how I know it is I read what he said and then I read what the Word says. I read what he said God told him was truth, and then I read if it happened. And the Bible says if someone comes and says they're a prophet, listen to what they say and see if it happens. If it doesn't, they're false. I don't have any feelings about this. You know what? Quite well, frankly, I ask, like Joseph Smith. Well, okay, well, let me ask you another question. A what? lot of things that previous prophets had manifest or, or proclaimed that would happen didn't happen within until thousands of years later. How can you say that what was prophesied just because it hasn't happened, he isn't a prophet. Because the things he was prophesying have passed the time frame of when he said they would happen. If a prophet said there's going to be a skunk that has pink spots and he doesn't give a time frame, well, then we could say, well, you know, 10,000 years later, a skunk did show up. He was true. But if he says a skunk with pink spots is going to show up before the sun goes down, then we have a time frame to see if he's telling the truth. Joseph had time frames on his prophecies that failed. It's not a matter that you can then kind of wiggle it and then make it work to say, well, he was talking about not. So, so Joseph Smith, like for instance, give me a for instance where Joseph Smith said that something would happen in a certain time that it didn't happen. You go to utlm.org. We covered okay. this. Yeah, go to utlm.org. Okay. They'll, so, they'll give yeah, you that. Yeah. Do you believe that anytime anybody's Two people are gathered in the name of Christ, there's love. When two people are gathered when in the name of Christ, there's love. Yeah, no. do you believe, you've never heard that, that any time that two or more are gathered in, the, in his name, there is love? I've never heard that in my life. Okay. Yeah, it's not scriptural. Okay. Do you think that people who live in glass houses shouldn't cast stones? Sure. Okay, do you believe that a man should not pluck sawdust from another man's eye, having not removed the plank from his own? Sure. Okay, no further questions. Okay, counselor, thank you. Have Next witness. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to Lori and Logan. Uh, Lori, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, real quick, had a question. Um, seen it on a prominent channel around here. Advertisements for uh, shows on primetime about Joseph Smith papers. They're making a big deal out about these Love letters to Emma Smith, wondering what the deal with that was, and if you've seen it. And then also to call to your attention, I've seen advertisements this summer. Um, travel agencies say vacation in the lands of the Book of Mormon, and how's that possible? And I'll just go ahead and hang up now then. Okay, Lori, let me, want me to answer off air? Yeah. Okay, thanks. You know what? I don't live in the state, and so I don't get to see the things that are on TV about these Joseph Smith papers. Uh, and I know one, they are really, they're, they're, what these papers have allowed them to do is address some issues that the quote-unquote anti-Mormon providers, Sandra and Gerald Tanner, have been saying forever. 
they realized because of the internet, they've got to start getting this stuff out somewhere. So they put it in this official form, these Joseph Smith papers, and then they do all this promotion for it and talking. And then now the, their apologists will be able to go back and say, well, we revealed all this in the Joseph Smith papers. This has been, a, this is nothing new. It's old stuff. So that's one thing about it. Um, the second thing is, do not mistake me when it comes to Joseph Smith. If he was sitting in your living room, you would like the man. If, uh, and I know that he wrote love letters to Emma. The man was a romantic. He loved women. And so he was going to treat Emma well. To paint him as uh, something because he's not a prophet doesn't mean he was a, a bad guy in every sense of the word. And this is the problem. When you start going down those roads, if you tr think in this black and white thinking, then what you say is, he was an evil, evil man. He had horns and he's this. And it's just not true. And so then when you find out that he did have a good side, it totally throws out your argument and you embrace him. Look at the facts. What are the realities of Joseph Smith? Yes, he did a lot of good things. I believe that as a person, a guy, I would have personally loved to hang out with him. I think he would have been funny. I know he was funny. I, he was obviously charismatic. He was obviously super intelligent. He was obviously well-read in spite of how the church tries to paint him as a hayseed. And he, and he obviously, he loved his children. He did good things. But he did very bad things. This is what you, you, you got to remember. And if you're looking at a pro prophet and someone who says, thus saith the Lord over and over and over again with things as minute as is what kind of, uh, how to do a business transaction and that a, a fellow guy should sell his land and give it to Joseph or give it to the church. When the prophet starts speaking like that, thus saith the Lord, you've got a problem with this guy no matter how likable he is. Look at the facts, all of them, and size up what he is. Read what the word says. If he's lied, if, he's made, if he has fail, failed in his prophecies, he is not a prophet. We have just 42 seconds. I'm going quickly. Don, you, I'm sorry, you've only got 40, 30 seconds. Go, man. Hi. One time you appeared on a radio program with Van Hale. Oh, that was a disaster. Are you, are you willing to meet with him on your station so that other people could see that? Are you uh, courageous enough to talk to him one more time? Uh, no, I'm not courageous enough. I'm, I'm terrified of the whole prospect. What I am is smart enough to realize that I'm not a debater. After the Van Hill thing, I admitted I'm not a debater. I simply am a researcher, I'm a writer, and I'm a presenter. Van Hale, Van Hale is a professional apologist who said things like he won't stand with creationism. We'll get more on this next week. We're out of time, Don. See you then.